family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunt, your host, looking forward to two hours of improvisational conversation. We will play with ideas, insights, and a few feelings here and there among the topics to be discussed. The best nonstop garden party ever took place in ancient Greece. The man behind it is one of the least known and most influential and interesting philosophers. We will dive into the mind of Epicurus and find out why he was a main influence on the Italian Renaissance and on the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and on what he might be offering us here in the 21st century. And what's a zeitgeist? Well, we're in one. We can surf on it or we can be drowned in it. We'll take a look at zeitgeist and the 21st century zeitgeist that uh, we like to surf here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Helping me with the conversation is someone you enjoy every weekend here on Radio Frequency 100.1, Ron Van Warmer. And we'll have live jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher and personal friend of the Big Electron, Patrick Carlin. We always leave room for surprises, and one of those will be that we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. So fasten your seatbelts, grab some caffeine or whatever gets you kick-started in the morning, and join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Ah, we made it through another introduction. <laughs> good morning, did. Ron. Perfect timing. Good morning, Doug. How are you this morning? Oh, just a, just fine. A little, a little dandy. A little dandy, fine and dandy. Yeah, I don't like too much dandy. Yeah, dandy. I can. like the fine part. <laughs> can get in the way. It's yeah. cold out there today. Yeah, it's, it's called winter. Oh, right. I forgot. And yeah, I find myself in a tremendously ironic situation. I hate global warming and it's what it's the devastation it's going to cause and the fact yeah. that we human beings are doing very little about it on the other hand i like the warm winter i know it's a it's 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 very conflicting so i just want you to know i do feel a tinge of guilt every morning when i go out with my aerosol can and spray it <laughs> a tinge of guilt yeah uh-huh maybe i'm being a little self-centered well you know that's we do all right. what we have to do that's right what do we have to worry about? We won't be here. So uh, if I throw a word out like Epicurean, what, what, does, what does that connotate? Uh, it's uh, something, uh, usually something sort of fancy luxury. Nice. Yes, exactly right. That's the definition. And it's a wrong definition. Yeah, I know. And the reason is some dandy wealthy folks in England, I forget which century, when, like 18th, whatever, uh, took the philosophy of Epicurus uh, 
because he was so into pleasure ah. and so into food and garden and thinking, etc., they just adapted it to, oh, Epicurean means fancy, high, you know, expensive food right. and lifestyle, which is almost the opposite of what Epicurus not only lived and wrote about, I mean, not only wrote about, but lived. Now, the pursuit of happiness, as we've been discussing. We've discussed that. And what he meant by happiness and pleasure were a little different take than, ah. than modern day. So, a little flagellation? No. <laughs> no, he was against all that. He, oh, he, he okay. was probably the most exuberant philosopher of all time. Wow. But he understood the dangers of excessive pleasure, but he also understood the danger of not putting pleasure at the forefront of how we act because and psychologists now have proven this um, to our benefit and our detriment virtually every move we make is based on seeking pleasure and avoiding pain yeah which makes sense um, but he gets a little more deeply into it and um, one of the best books I ever read uh, was called The Swerve could you look that up I, sure. I, uh, who wrote that it was a Interesting, because he was a Harvard historian, I believe. And a book I'm going to talk about today is one that I'm both enjoying and not enjoying at the same time, uh, which is also written by a Harvard professor. Um, but um, The Swerve was such a well-written book. It was an exciting story and a story I was not familiar with. And I'd always wanted to know a little bit more about the origins of the Italian Renaissance. How did how did how did we come out of that dark, those dark middle ages and into this amazing Renaissance? You know, what were, what were the key influences? Uh-huh. Uh, who wrote the swerve? Stephen Greenblatt. And he is, a, I think a Harvard historian. Stephen Greenblatt, uh, winner of the 2012 Pulitzer prize, national book award, uh, for the swerve. Yes. And I'm just looking to see, um, uh, do we have, uh, okay, look up the swerve, because there's probably a good subtitle to it. But basically, he was getting at how one the of Renaissance the, began. How the Renaissance began. So as I remember the book, um, there was a pope uh, uh, who was rather progressive. And in, during the Middle Ages, the reason they're called the Dark Ages is um, there was no curiosity. There was really, the only learning that took place were in monasteries. Right, of course. And in yeah. royal palaces. Um, that was it. If you were just a basic citizen, first of all, the p printing press hadn't been invented yet. Most uh, information was, was, was handwritten on manuscripts. Mm -hmm. But manuscripts were restricted to the monasteries. They were so, the only ones who could write. Well, yeah, the only ones much. who could write and the only ones who were allowed to think. Yeah. <laughs> and they were only allowed to think according to church dictates. And so that's why it's called the Dark Ages. Uh, and physically, the... Uh, this Pope knew that many of the great manuscripts from ancient Greece, that all that great ancient Greek wisdom had been literally physically buried in the catacombs of monasteries ah. because the last thing church leaders wanted was people thinking, particularly thinking as ancient Greeks did because what ancient Greeks philosophers gave us was the both importance and pleasure of looking inward. And thinking about things uh -huh. and being curious about things and developing insights about things on one's own and in conversation with others. That didn't happen in the Middle Ages. No. So this pope, we should give him credit, whoever he was, um, 
was uh, progressive, <laughs> and he sent an emissary uh, out on a on a rather dangerous mission. Uh, travel was dangerous back then. Um, we're talking about 13th century, uh, and he was to go. This emissary was to go through Europe to visit monasteries, go down into the catacombs, and see if he might bring back uh, manuscripts that had been buried for literally over a thousand years. And this emissary goes out, and he's discovering manuscripts that didn't seem that important. Then all of a sudden, he finds one, and he just knows this is important. He's not even sure why. And it turned out to be a manuscript of an extended poem by the Roman uh, poet Lucretius called On the Nature of Things. Could it be Pope Clement the ah, 11th? Thank you, Clement. Thank you, Google. An 11th? Yeah, thank you, Google, <laughs> despite the fact that you deserve your trillions of dollars, but you're <laughs> stealing our identities. But that's okay. That's another story. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, 11 is my lucky number. Interesting. But Clement the 11th, huh? So, um, uh Big improvement over Clement the Tenth, by the way. Oh my God! Anyway, he was progr- so he said, "You know what? I'm going to send someone out. I, I'm interested in seeing what he might find in these catacombs." And he comes. So this emissary comes back with a manuscript called "Of the Nature of Things" by Lucretius, this like hundred-page poem, which was basically both an explanation and celebration of the philosophy of Epicurus, uh-huh. who was a Greek philosopher. Oh, lived about eighty years after Plato died, fifth century B.C. Um, lived on the island of Samos uh, off the Greek coast. Well, that'll keep you happy. And um, Epicurus was a fascinating dude. He would have done very well uh, in the 1960s counterculture, ah. um, which we didn't realize he was he helped create thousands of years before. Huh. There's a zeitgeist. There's a zeitgeist. 1960s. Zeitgeist, yeah, zeitgeist means the spirit of the age. And by spirit, a zeitgeist would include... Uh, Yes, the politics, but more importantly, the psychology, the mindset, the transformation, the insights that come from a certain age. Uh-huh. So we have we had the great age of uh, ancient Greek philosophy. We had the so-called age of enlightenment, which uh-huh. was uh, Descartes and Newton and Leibniz and the whole scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th centuries. We had the industrial age. 19th century, um, the electronic age, the early 20th century. Right. Now we're in the digital age. Yeah. We, we, certainly there was a zeitgeist to the 1960s, et cetera. But a lot of these zeitgeists were actually influenced very much by Epicurus. Huh. And isn't it interesting, because uh, analogy, that here this emissary, thanks to a progressive pope, literally goes down into the catacombs in essence, the basements of these monasteries. Well, in the dream world, the <coughs> basement of a house is the unconscious. Of course. The dark part. And we tend to be afraid of the dark, even as adults, to our detriment, because as great psychologists, such as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, have shown us out of this darkness comes true liberation and enlightenment. And without it, we're just followed by shadows our whole life. So here this emissary literally goes down into the catacombs the dark catacombs retrieves this manuscript which had literally been buried for over a thousand years wow. brings it back and it's back then in order to be dispersed the manuscript could be passed around 
but then it would be hand copied. So and, it was a rather slow, laborious process. And I imagine it had to be translated. And translated. But suddenly, for the first time, instead of nobody reading about the philosophy of Epicurus, word started spreading. There was ah. this really cool thing that came on that was unearthed. Clement, you know? cool pope. Yeah. And according to the swerve, written by the historian uh, uh, Greenblatt, Greenblatt, and very well-written, exciting story, it wasn't the only, but one of the key instigators of what we now know as the Italian Renaissance. Well, why would the philosophy of Epicurus do that, and why would it also be a huge influence, even though we didn't know his name, during the 1960s? Well, uh, a more recent book was written by Daniel Klein, another Harvard dude. This guy was uh, graduated um, the PhD in philosophy from Harvard, so he's got to have some brains. Uh-huh. Uh, the fortunate part of this book is he celebrates, it's a travelogue of his trip at age 72 to retrace Greek philosophy by going back to these islands and hanging out. Oh, nice gig. Good idea. And some of it's quite engaging. My problem with the book is he gets too cute. Ah. And what Goldblatt does in The Swerve is he's able to bring philosophy to life in an exciting and important way without getting into Hallmark card cliches. And Klein, who's obviously a brilliant man, PhD in philosophy from Harvard, understandably wants to popularize philosophy Uh and save it from the prison of academia and I know this firsthand because I was a philosophy major. And what I discovered was I love philosophy. I hated most of the philosophy courses. <laughs> um, philosophy was meant for the people. It wasn't meant just for academics. So it's been hijacked. And I appreciate that Daniel Klein is trying to popularize this stuff. Unfortunately, in my opinion, he gets a little too cute. Uh-huh. But that said, Travels with Epicurus is, is you know, I'm enjoying it. Skipping through some of it. And I want to read some excerpts <laughs> from that. And then I'm going to read from, right. a, from a website that's dedicated to Epicurus. And we can talk about how it might relate to our lives here in the 21st century. Because it's all about pleasures. Uh. But pleasure not in just a hedonic way. But in a way that Epicurus figured out was could truly lead to a satisfying life. And this wasn't just a theory. You see, he ran a decades-long garden party. Ah. So we'll get into that a little bit. Okay. okay. So this is, we'll give Daniel Klein credit, uh, travels with Epicurus, a journey to a Greek island in search of a fulfilled life. <clears throat> Epicurus believed that old age was the pinnacle of life, the best it gets. In the collection known as the Vatican Sayings, so named because the manuscript was discovered in the Vatican Library in the 19th century, let me stop here. Very little of what Epicurus wrote has survived. He wrote over something like 400 (laughs) treatises. Very little survived. Uh We have some aphorisms. We have some letters. That's it. So a lot of this had to be pieced together. Um, But Epicurus is recorded as stating it is not the young man who should be considered fortunate, but the old man who had, or person who has lived well because the young person in his prime wanders much by chance, vacillating in his or her beliefs, while the old person has docked in the harbor having safeguarded his true happiness. Ah. 
The idea, uh, this is the author now writing, the idea of being an old man safe in the harbor buoys me up as I sit um, here on this Greek island pondering the best way to spend this stage of my life. It is the notion of being free from vacillating beliefs that gets to me. My understanding from Epicurus's other teachings is that he also is referring to the young man's vacillating pursuits, the ones that follow from his vacillating beliefs. By the way, in the 21st century, uh, digital natives, those born after 2000, are realizing it is likely they're going to have between 7 and 12 jobs during their lives. Right. Yeah. Not one. I started that trend. <laughs> well, thank you. Because the last thing I wanted was one career. Yeah, me too. Epicurus is pointing to what the Zen Buddhists call the emptiness of striving. And in our culture, striving is the hallmark of a man still in his prime. That's why I've contended in recent weeks the notion of the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Happiness is wonderful. It's something we not only all seek, it's something we all need. It's the pursuit that sometimes can screw us up. Since we've been talking about this and I've been thinking about it, and a few weeks ago you asked us if you would prefer to be happy or content, and there was some uh, Well, I, I, put, I, gave you, I gave you an interesting, what I thought was an interesting choice, uh, which I think deserves contemplation. Um, would you take the following deal? I gave you a deal. Yeah. Okay. You can never be happy again, but you'll you will virtually all the time be content and satisfied. Yeah, and most people would reject that deal. And and I took the happiness in yeah. that moment. That's our and first instinct. On reflection, I've been thinking about it for the past few weeks, and I'm feeling like reality is I am content. Mm. I may not be. I mean, it feels like happiness in a way, but the contentment and the uh, the not striving for something unattainable that I always did when I was younger, always striving for something more. Now I feel like I've got what I, what I want, and uh, I am content, and that brings about a sort of happiness. Well, that must mean you must have like, what, five, six million in the bank? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that because... Um, but a lot less stress than I had in my youth. Ah, and... Also, um, and what Epicurus is able to do is talk about the importance of pleasure and happiness in a way that's truly healthy. Uh-huh. Okay. Which we don't see today. No. Okay, so here we go. Um, Epicurus is pointing to what Zen Buddhists call the emptiness of striving, and in our culture, striving is the hallmark of a man still in his prime. The same goes for those of us who embrace the forever young credo. We don't give up setting ever new goals for ourselves, new ambitions to fulfill while we still can. Many forever youngsters are driven by the frustration of not having fully achieved the goals they dreamed of attaining when they were younger. They see their final years as a last chance to grab some elusive brass ring. Mm -hmm. I became particularly aware of this phenomenon recently when the 50th anniversary report of my college class arrived in the mail. And then he gets into some cute stuff I'm not interested in. But anyway... um, (laughs) He then goes on to, to talk about Epicurus again. Unsurprisingly, Epicurus's laid-back legacy survives more thoroughly in Greece's rural areas than in the cities today. Aegean islanders like to tell a joke about a prosperous Greek-American who visits one of the islands on vacation. Out on a walk, the affluent Greek-American comes upon an old Greek man sitting on a rock 
sipping a glass of ouzo, and lazily staring at the sun setting into the sea. The American notices there are olive trees growing on the hills behind the old Greek, but they're unattended, with olives just dropping here and there onto the ground. He asks the old man who the trees belong to. Well, they're mine, the old Greek replies. Don't you gather the olives, the wealthy American asks. I just pick one when I want one, the old man says. <laughs> ah, but you don't realize that if you pruned the trees and picked the olives at their peak, you could sell them. In America, everybody's crazy about virgin olive oil, and they pay a damn good price for it. <clears throat> what would I do with the money, the old Greek asks. Why, you could build yourself a big house and hire a service to do everything for you. And then what would I do? Well, you could do anything you want, the wealthy Greek <laughs> says. And the old man says, oh, you mean like sit outside and sip ouzo at sunset? Uh-huh. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad at all. And, and I'm getting, you know, the older I get, the more I feel like uh, that <clears throat> uh, sounds pretty nice. Now, uh, if, Epicur- if we take anything literally, it becomes ridiculous. So if Epicurus never strove for anything, he wouldn't have created this decades-long garden party, right. which we're going to get into. But we'll look at his intention, which is quite interesting. It's not like I've given up. <clears throat> no. I just but that's what we're told. Find contentment in you, 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 qu- things that I do. What was my gym teacher's great adage? Quitters never win and winners never, winners never quit. Ah. Yeah. And... Um, that's why I never wore a lanyard. Yeah. <laughs> Gym teachers always wear lanyards. So. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So got anyway. Uh, oh, another one I've talked about. Another one we were told about. Here's a good one. Here, This will get you to the chiropractor. Um, nose to the grindstone, shoulder to the wheel. Right. That's a nice position. That's a nice yoga position. Yeah. <laughs> That'll get you. That's, that. a healthy, that's a healthy way to live. Uh-huh. All right. Here we go. All right. Uh, this is from The Pursuit of Happiness, Bringing the Science of Happiness to Life. Epicurus. Epicurus is considered a major figure in the history of science as well as, by the way, we'll get to his garden because that's really what this is about. Epicurus is considered a major figure in the history of science as well as philosophy. He argued that we should only proportion belief to empirical evidence and logic, and he propounded the scientific view of atomism, according to which all facts in the world are caused by the configuration of atoms or indivisible elements in a microscopic. We're pretty good for a guy who never, before the microscope was invented. But you see, his he he was able to build a logical argument up to the point where it led him to an incredibly pleasurable and happy existence. Now. He held that pleasure is the only intrinsic value. As we shall see, however, his view of pleasure is far from the stereotypical one. Uh-huh. So the pursuit of happiness could be something completely different. Correct. For Epicurus, the most pleasant life, pleasure, is one where we abstain from unnecessary desires and achieve an inner tranquility. Greek word is antaraxia. Yeah, and sometimes it takes us a lifetime to figure that out. Mm. <laughs> and the way we develop inner tranquility is to learn to be content with simple things. 
and choosing the pleasure of philosophical conversation with friends over excessive pursuits of physical pleasures like food, drink, and sex. Uh-huh. And yet, as we'll see, his garden parties were pleasurable, had really good food, good wine. And maybe sex. <laughs> he, he, there wasn't sex on the premises, but he was not anti-sex at all, as a lot of Greek philosophers were. Uh-huh. And he was one of the few in the 5th century, century Greeks who threw a party and welcomed women, uh-huh. welcomed people of all economic classes, and even slaves were welcome if they wanted to engage in how the garden parties operated, which wow. were the, the purpose of the parties were enjoy the pleasures of the garden. He had a huge garden, vegetable garden, mm. and then other people would, would contribute other foods. So there's always food, there was wine, but there was always an emphasis on philosophical conversation. There would be a lecture by a great philosopher or teacher, but there were also, you were encouraged, like in a good salon, to just get involved with conversations with people you met or people you knew about the meaning of life. Uh So here's the writer of the article, The Pursuit of Happiness, from Epicurus and Happiness website. Imagine, if you will, a lush garden full of fresh fruits and vegetables. Robed figures pass to and fro along the path, stopping now and then to engage one another in pleasant conversation, not on gossip, not on who's going to win the Oscar, but on science, philosophy, and art. In one corner, a minstrel plays a harmonious chords on his lyre. In another, there's a discussion on free will. The teacher explains there is no reason to fear the gods and that human beings have complete freedom to choose their own path in life and to obtain happiness in the here and now. A cool wind blows as one breathes in the Mediterranean ocean air amidst the beauty of nature and fellowship of friends and family. Epicurus taught that while the gods do exist... They do not concern themselves with human affairs. As such, we have no need to fear any punishment from them, nor do we need to spend time in laborious acts of pious worship. (coughs) As for death, he points out that once sentient experience comes to an end, there will be no sensation of pain, so why worry? Uh He notes further that we need wisdom to see which pleasures are really pleasurable and which pains are necessary to produce pleasure. Some pleasures lead to greater pain, like too much alcohol, too much rich food, (laughs) which is why Epicureanism, the way it's practiced today, is the opposite of what Epicurus taught. Right. So, um, he makes an important distinction between necessary and unnecessary desires. We need wisdom to see which pleasures are really pleasurable and which pains are necessary to produce pleasure. Some pleasures lead to greater pain, too much alcohol, rich food. On the other hand, certain pains like sadness can lead to an appreciation for life or compassion, which are highly pleasurable states. We should therefore not get rid of all negative emotions, but only those that lead to unnecessary pains. This is really smart stuff. Sure. Yes, indeed it is. 
Another one of the main conclusions of recent research on happiness, which Epicurus intuited in the 5th century B.C., in his garden, eating good food, drinking wine, getting into great conversations with friends, family, and people of all economic backgrounds and faiths. According to recent research on happiness, is the limited role that external conditions play in making one happy. This is the lie that we are sold. That if we want to be happy, we need to have certain things. Right. From the outside. Okay. Well, yeah, we need enough food to live on. Yeah. Okay. We need. We do need some clothes. Yes. But we're taught that happiness comes from external stuff. Things. It has been now found through studies that income, marriage, good looks, even winning the lottery only have a small impact on one's lasting happiness. Epicurus anticipates this with his claim that the greatest secret to happiness is to be as independent of external things as possible. And yet, and by the way, if people get a kick out of watching the Oscars, watch the Oscars. Yeah. But let's just be honest about something. The main reason we're fascinated by the Oscars is the same reason as infants we're fascinated by shiny objects. <laughs> okay? Well, yeah. Being content with the simple things in life ensures that you will never be disappointed. If you put your stock in unnecessary pleasures like costly luxuries and expensive foods, you will be upset when you lose these things, anxious to obtain them, and continually push onward towards greater luxuries and therefore greater anxiety and disappointment. And that's how we spend most of our lives. When is enough enough? Yeah. We have to train our brain to figure that out. Because our brain, which is an amazing tool, and our educational system addresses a small part of it, and it addresses the part that's most addictive. Because let's just be honest, not all, but most of our education is there to teach us to behave in accordance with the way that the norms of society dictate. Mm -hmm. And those norms... Some of them are quite sensible. Most of them yeah. are BS. <laughs> and are there just to let the rich get richer. And unfortunately, we spend most of our lives striving for those things that we'll never achieve and being disappointed. But Epicurus is making another point as well. If you achieve them, you're not going to be happy either. No, you're not because you're still going to strive Zen for something point. more. If, you are, if your life is dictated by pursuit, doesn't mean pursuit in and of itself is bad. We've all attained satisfaction from pursuing certain things. But if we're addicted to pursuit, we're never gonna, we're never gonna be content or happy. Or, or really, we'll, we'll experience, Epicurus says, short-term pleasures, but never long-term pleasures. And he was concerned with long-term, lasting pleasure. Now, again, we have very little existing writing from Epicurus, but we have a few, a few little... Uh, excerpts when we this is one when we say then that pleasure is the end and the aim we do not mean the pleasures of the prodigal prodigal whatever mm. or the pleasures of sensuality as we are understood to do through ignorance prejudice or willful misrepresentation by pleasure we mean 
the absence of pain in the body and trouble in the soul. It is not an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and of revelry. It's not based on sexual lust and not just the enjoyment of fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table that produce a pleasant life. It is rather reasoning, searching out the grounds of choice and avoidance and banishing those beliefs that lead to the tumult of the soul. <clears throat> now, his garden parties were proof of this. Um, and I don't remember whether he worked for his money or inherited it, but he used his money to basically create these garden parties which were salons uh -huh. where you not only enjoyed good wholesome food, vegetables, fruits. Some people would bring meat in. It wasn't factory farm meat pumped up with steroids <laughs> and antibiotics. What? And <clears throat> it was balanced food, but it was food from the earth, primarily fruits and vegetables, uh, some grains, some meat, wine, and conversation. Mm. And while it didn't always have to be serious conversation, there was the push towards talking about science, philosophy, and art. And what is the good life? L lasting pleasures as opposed to transient. Yeah, fleeting. Short-term, fleeting, better term. Fleeting pleasures. Okay. So Epicurus makes the following claims about Oh, we're past our first break. We'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. Okay. Bombadida, 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 who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to now, great choice, Ron. Those people are having fun. That was Van Halen, by the way. Come on. <laughs> no, seriously. No. Yeah. And what, and what drugs were we on? I, know. I don't know what they were doing. That's great. <laughs> great find. I believe this is still the Woodstock Roundtable. And I'm Doug Grunthe, your host, co-hosting, as he does with us every week, is on-air personality here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. He'll stick around after I leave at 9 to play some really cool music. I will. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to have live jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. Talking about the great philosopher Epicurus. Yeah. <clears throat> Lived in the 5th century B.C., part of that great tradition of great Greek philosophy. But Epicurus, who's very little known and should be because it was his <clears throat> insights into life that were one of the main instigators of the Italian Renaissance when his manuscript was unearthed from the catacombs of the monastery. Um, and uh, his garden party is reflected in a lot of the counterculture 
actions of the 1960s that we baby boomers went through. Hmm. Um, I also think he has a lot to tell us about today because in the digital age, which I love as anxiety ridden as it is, and I love it because never before in human history have we had access to so much wisdom and information. The tough part is we also have more access to fake news, gossip, <laughs> and harmful things. So like Epicurus, we actually have to do the work of figuring out where we go on the web and, you know, choosing. Because uh-huh. we have the ability to choose. But we have to realize that the advertisers out there and the promoters out there of both good things and bad um, are very smart and very effective in their techniques. But Epicurus um, ran this garden party that went on for decades where um, people it was open to, you know, and uh, so there were people, there weren't just wealthy folks there as most philosophy. It was, philosophy was talked about by everybody. Slaves were allowed in. If they wanted to talk, learn about philosophy and hear a lecture, come on in. Yeah. Women were welcome. That was not true in most Greek yeah. schools. But this was an outdoor garden party school. It was, in essence, an open, uh, an open air salon and involved really good tasting food, but simple foods. So, as we said before, for those just tuning in, the word Epicurean has been misused. Yeah. Wealthy aristocrats in England took it, you know, started developing it to mean what it means today. Epicurean means good tasting, but fancy, more expensive food Mm -hmm. and culture and artifacts. Not what Epicurus was about. Here's some of the following claims he made about human happiness, having thought about it his whole life. (laughs) Happiness is pleasure. All things are to be done for the sake of pleasant feelings associated with them. But what he pointed out was if you pursue expensive things all the time, you're never going to be find life pleasurable. Mm-hmm. You're too busy pursuing things you don't have. And it appears that when people do have more than they need, they still look for more. Addiction. False beliefs produce unnecessary pain, among them that the gods will punish us and that death is something to be feared. Right. There are necessary and unnecessary desires. Necessary desires, like desiring to be free from bodily pain, help in producing happiness, whereas unnecessary desires, like desiring a bigger car, a more luxurious meal, typically produce unhappiness. The aim is not the positive pursuit of pleasure, but rather the absence of pain, a neutral state he calls ataraxia which is freedom from worry, often translated as inner tranquility. And that gets to the deal I offered you in Victoria a few years ago, which is a tricky one, the way we're taught. The deal was, would you give up being, it's a little different from Epicurus, would you give up ever being happy again in exchange for 90% of the time at least enjoying simple pleasures and feeling content and satisfaction? Yes, I would do that now. But your first, uh, after, and, but your first response was the opposite. Yes, and, and I, I think most of our for, first responses would be good. That's why we need to contemplate. And if we contemplate and we come out of that contemplation saying, no, I want to pursue bigger, then go do it. Because it's hard for me to separate contentment with happiness. Mm. Well, they're not separate. But what Epicurus shows us is we have to think it through a little bit. Yes. And contentment... Is, is a much more desired 
place to be. And I like his word, I like the phrase inner tranquility, because our culture, which has certain virtues, created the most wealth of any culture ever in human history, but now we're seeing it's eating its young. Uh huh. Just turn on the TV oh, yeah. or open a newspaper. And um, so we've taken a good thing and we're ruining it because of excess. We've lost our Epicurean center. Um, because what he calls ataraxia, that inner, is tranquility. Now, our culture does not honor tranquility. No. Because if we have inner tranquility, we're not going to go out there and produce new things that people can buy. <laughs> yeah. And we are a consumer economy. Oh, absolutely. It worked beautifully from 1945 to the to the Reagan era. Worked beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, created a whole middle class. Never before seen. Right. What, what happened? It's been eviscerated. Yeah. Not by accident. But um, our culture has no interest in tranquility. Now, I'm not going to sit here and put Northern Europe up as a bastion of perfect happiness. No. But in all the happiness indexes, which are done every year, mm -hmm. who comes out on top? Denmark. Right. Finland. Belgium. Netherlands. Democratic socialist countries where people are the happiest. Why? They have their problems. Mm -hmm. They're going to suffer climate change as much as we are. Their economies are in trouble just as ours is about to be. But their culture advocates for sharing. Right. That's why you're guaranteed a free education and free medical care, something which scares the hell out of at least half Americans. And, and, and we, we don't lose, want universal health care. We lose a lot of sleep because we're so concerned about those things because mm -hmm. we don't have them. So... Uh, a little Epicureanism, true Epicureanism, would be helpful, That developing that inner tranquility. If we don't contemplate it and think it through, it's easy to see tranquility as not that, If okay, if I'm tranquil, that would be healthy, but I won't be as happy. Because if I'm tranquil, I won't, you know, I won't be pursuing things. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we're forced to pursue things because uh, we haven't set up our society to take care of uh, the people who need to be taken care and the, of. But the argument that I think needs to be addressed is the one that the capitalist argument, which would be it's the Protestant ethic, which is the purpose of life is work. Right. Now, Epicurus, Epicurus worked. You uh -huh. don't just you don't just he didn't just go out and hire people to put together a party for him. <laughs> it wasn't catered. Uh -huh. OK, he worked at it. But it emerged, his decades-long salon open-air garden party, salon, philosophical forum, um, emerged from deep contemplation, which is work of a certain kind. But in capitalism, much of which we benefit from, mm -hmm. But the problem with capitalism at its extreme is you never stop working until exactly. you retire. If you can retire. If you can retire. So the point, work, 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 whether you like it or not, and then you get to retire. 
Right. Is that, is, okay. If you think that makes for a healthy life, good, good, good luck. Yeah. Uh, the point is, inner tranquility is not the opposite of, of being a, an entrepreneur. Okay? Right. One can work at things without putting one's, the bad yoga position of shoulder, uh, uh, nose to the <laughs> grindstone and shoulders to the wheel. There are other ways of, of working productively. You know what? Denmark and Finland and Belgium, all the ha- those happy places, they still produce geniuses. Yes, they do. They still produce great inventions. Yes. They just do it in a healthier way. Okay. A little more Epicure- from Epicurus. Happiness is not a private affair. It can more readily be achieved in a society where like-minded individuals band together to help inspire one's and one another's pursuit of happiness. Mm. Okay. A little of Epicure. And if we weren't so worried about the things that we don't have, like health insurance and retirement funds, we would be more productive doing the things that we're talented to do. That sounded very anti-capitalist to me. Oh. Be careful. (laughs) All right. Now I'm going to go back to the book Travels with Epicurus, A Journey to a Greek Island in Search of a Fulfilled Life by Daniel Klein. Unsurprisingly, Epicurus's laid-back legacy survives more thoroughly in Greece's rural areas than in cities. Okay, I did that. Right. Go back here. Hang on. Uh, Ah. Here we go. And this gets to one of my favorite subjects because I intuited very young, around age four, that, I mean, I wasn't able to phrase it this way in my four or five and six-year-old mind. Uh But what I intuited was the purpose of life is play. Uh Now, there's just pure play for pure fun, but there's also serious play. What I loved about philosophy in my first philosophy course, taught by a brilliant teacher who is exciting, is that at its best, philosophy is the mind at play. We play with ideas. Uh We play with insights. We let them bounce off each other a little bit. We let them argue with each other in our minds. Philosophy at its best is playful. You wouldn't know that by taking a philosophy (laughs) course with most people. So here is uh, Harvard philosopher Daniel Klein. Not only is play a human cultural universal, but most animals are top-notch players too. Whether it's a pair of bear cubs splashing one another in a stream, where judging by their mother's impatient reaction, they are supposed to be learning how to fish. Uh And that's exactly what's going on. Right. Um. Or my dog running ever-expanding circles around the spruce tree in our yard back home. The animal instinct for aimless fun is built into their brains. Ditto for us, especially when we are still at that stage of life when notions of accomplishment and making something of ourselves have yet to put the damper on and just plain fooling around, namely when we're really young. Uh The transformation of pure play into competitive play, the ancient Greeks were Olympic champs at this, constituted a damper, a dampening of the notion of play. We went from pointless play to keeping one eye on the scoreboard. 
And our current dedication to sports is self-improvement, complete with personal trainers and strange garments made out of spandex, has virtually <laughs> wiped out any lighthearted remaining notion of play, even when taking a walk. Distance and elapsed time are now recorded as we compete with ourselves for our personal best when we yeah. walk. Huh? Play is no longer something we do with our idle time. It's another ambitious activity crammed into our schedules. Yeah. Soccer moms. Organized play. And, and yeah. that to be not a great idea. Now, that doesn't mean we can't get enjoyment of organized play. I enjoyed Little League, but the competitive nature just got out of control. Uh-huh. And you did tennis. You were Well, and I yeah, and I wrestled I wrestled with that one because um I was a tennis pro, it was my first profession, yeah. and I competed from age 14 to age 26 virtually I was either training or playing matches 360 days a year and i'm glad i did it Uh but when i gave it up cold turkey at age 40 being a co-owner of a tennis club at the time right um i hadn't planned on giving it up it just occurred to me one day oh that's enough (laughs) and Uh i took up another sport golf which is now i know intuitively one reason i took up golf slowed me down Uh uh-huh and while I have a little competitive feelings for golf, I've never really wanted to play tournaments, nor right. have. I play it for fun. Uh. Now, I strive and struggle to get better at it to this day. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm no Zen master at this. But I have learned at least to enjoy more of the just pure, the pure fun of trying to learn a little more. Um, it's one of the few games you can get better at, at least in certain aspects, in old age. My grandfather was a golfer, and he said that the worst invention that, that ruined golf was the golf cart, because walking the golf course is one of the real pleasures. Was the real pleasure yeah. of playing golf. It's one of the real. And he pleasures. said the golf cart just destroyed it. Mm. But anyway, a play is crucial, and we have lost a lot of that sense. It's one thing I'll give myself credit for: I never lost that. I never allowed work to interfere with my play. Uh-huh. That's something, and I and I realize now that was ingrained in my mind before. And I, I don't quite know where it came from. I mean, yes, my father loved sports. He loved. He was a very good bridge player, good chess player. I never took to bridge or chess, but he inspired me to get into tennis. Uh, I loved going to baseball games with him. Um, so I'm sure it comes from that, but. Uh, neither of my parents were philosophically inclined. They were very bright. But even as a kid, I just loved playing with ideas uh-huh. for the sheer enjoyment of the play. Right. And I'm grateful for that because that's not something I went out and learned. It was inherent. I'm not sure where it came from. None of my grandparents were philosophers. Huh. don't know where it came from. Huh. Epicurus was convinced that mental pleasures surpass physical pleasures, largely because the mind has the advantage of being able to contemplate pleasures of the past and anticipate pleasures of the future. Right. Now, let's just stop right there. He's turning on its head what we tend to do in modern culture, which is we bemoan the fact that we can't have some of the pleasures we had in the past and we're obsessed with pursuing pleasures in the future. He used that to his advantage. According to an explication by the Roman philosopher Cicero, a late-in-life Epicurean convert, 
This permitted hmm. a continuous and interconnected set of pleasures. Cicero and uh, Epicurus contemporaries? Or no. Uh, Cicero is Rome. Ah. So we're now in the A.D. eras. Okay. And Epicurus was... And again, all, this stuff only came because of a progressive pope who sent his emissary out to uncover the stuff that had been buried in catacombs during right. the Dark Ages. From a modern psychological perspective, this Epicurean ability of the mind to feel pleasure simply by remembering pleasant sensations seems exaggerated and overly optimistic. But his enthusiasm for the joys of thought, particularly solitary contemplation and enlightening conversation, remains worth thinking about. By the way, the word conversation has an interesting etymological meaning. Uh-huh. Con with verse move. Uh-huh. So Epicurus understood that, and his garden parties were great um, examples of the beauty of moving with somebody and having a conversation. Didn't mean you agreed with them. Right. But you were playing with ideas rather than, uh, than debating ideas. Uh-huh. Okay? So you were sharing instead of arguing. Competing. Both Epicurus and Plato believed old age provided a unique, a unique chance for unbounded, wide-ranging thought. And Epicurus saw the opportunity of old age as one more benefit from leaving the world of commerce and politics behind and freeing us to focus on brain power, often more intimate and philosophically, being immersed in the commercial world constrains the mind, limiting it to conventional acceptable thought. It is hard to close a sale if we pause in the proceedings to meditate at length about man's relationship to the cosmos. <laughs> Furthermore, without a business yeah. schedule, we simply have the time to ruminate unhurriedly, pursue a thought for as long and as far as it takes us. Contemporary brain research contributes a synoptic angle on this observation that in old age we are in better shape for thinking philosophical thoughts. And he goes into some studies that have proven this. Um, but I think the point has, hopefully has been made, that um, uh, Epicurus was not against the pursuit of happiness. He just thought it through in such a way that the pursuit of happiness in his own life and in the vibe, uh, the zeitgeist of his garden parties was... Let's enjoy what the earth provides, which is food mm -hmm. and drink. Um, and people brought stuff. It wasn't just that he would cater it. You know, he would he grew his own garden. Um, he had he other people helped him tend the garden because they would get to share in the bounty. Right. It, it, so it was a little bit like a commune, although not literally a commune. It definitely had a salon vibe. Uh -huh. Um, it definitely had the vibe of a philosophical forum because there were lectures and talks. But the lecture wasn't to go and just listen, take notes, and take a test on it. It was the talks were to inspire more conversation. More conversation, right. That was done while eating good, wholesome, simple foods. He often talked about the fact that his favorite food was a bowl of lentils. And he could afford rich foods. Uh -huh. But he realized that if he ate rich foods more than every than seldomly, he didn't feel good. Right. And so he actually learned, and that's another thing that I'm grateful for. Um, and the Woodstock vibe taught, when I first moved to Woodstock, I got into cooking uh -huh. and nutrition. 
and learned, took a long time, thanks to a lot of chefs who sponsored the show over the years. Right. I learned from chefs and learned from books and learned from interviewing folks about food that one does not have to distinguish between healthy food and great-tasting, pleasurable food. But Epicurus was doing this in 5th century uh-huh. B.C. Yeah. You know, you weren't going to find um, escargot and um, duck livers pate at his <laughs> garden parties. Right. But you would find delicious lentils, uh, vegetables, both cooked and raw, salads, some meats uh-huh. cooked simply, um, Good wine, not necessarily expensive wine. People made their own wines. And so, yeah. So the rephrasing for the Constitution perhaps should be the pursuit of contentment. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, pursuit of happiness works in the Epicurean model. Uh Unfortunately, we don't adhere to right? Unless you're ready to retire, you need to achieve more to to be satisfied. Yeah. Not what Epicurus taught. Well, interestingly, when, when uh, America was founded, the people who came here were coming here to get more. Sure. That's why they were here. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the whole thing was based on, getting well, more. if one is, they were, they were, first of all, they wanted more freedom. Right. Because they, they really came here to, to seek religion, you know, because they were being the, the pilgrims, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're being uh, persecuted. persecuted. Yeah. Um, there was also for some this whole notion of a new world, you know, which is in, always enticing. But that new world can be inner. Well, it can be. And when one learns to play with ideas and insights, whole new worlds emerge from inside the mind. Yeah. But we're taught that happiness and pleasure come from external pleasures. Yes. And Epicurus understood. Yeah, we enjoy good food, which is external, but we can only truly enjoy life in whole if we first gain some measure of inner tranquility, which takes some some work. Yeah, but that work can be done enjoyably in conversation with others. It can be done as opposed to in competitive classes and testing. Right. Um, well, when we come back, we'll, we're going to get back to this notion of play which certainly Epicurus understood. He, he understood philosophy as the play of ideas. Um, and uh, we're also going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. We're also going to have some live jazz from the Sultan of Sonic uh-huh. Soul and also an existential wrap-up with Patrick Garland. So hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Summer, just you and me. 